to Psalm 95, Psalm 95, starting in verse 1, it says, O come, let us sing unto the Lord, let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise unto Him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In His hand are the deep places of the earth. The strength of the hills is His also. The sea is His, and He made it, and His hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you will hear His voice, harden not your heart, as in the provocation, and as in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my work. Forty years long was I grieved with this generation, and said, It is a people that do err in their heart, and they have not known my ways, unto whom I swear in my wrath that they should not enter into my rest. So, Psalm 95 is a, uh, it's a, it's a psalm that really, it's a, it's rich as far as the, the, its place in scripture. You'll find this psalm being referred to a couple of times in the New Testament. Um, in Hebrews three and four, uh, this is the most replicated psalm in the New Testament. But by that, I just mean in that portion of scripture, we're going to look at it in, uh, at the end of the message tonight. But in that portion of scripture, he takes half of this psalm and quotes it and then spends the rest of the chapter and part of the next applying it as he refers back to it five different times. So it's a, it's a psalm that is, is taken up in the New Testament. Um, directly in a pretty heavy way, indirectly, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 would refer to uh, this portion of Scripture as far as the last half of Psalm 95. And one of the things that can be kind of confusing about this psalm is that it almost seems like um, the psalmist uh, was, was writing, he gets to verse uh, 6, Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Uh, and then it almost seems like He just completely changes the subject. Today, if you'll hear His voice, harden not your heart as in the day of provocation. Starts out with these exhortations to sing and to worship and to be joyful and all these things. And then the psalm kind of ends in a way that seems like it doesn't really match up with the way that it began. Um, well, one of the things that we always are in need of is for the Holy Spirit's help uh, as we come to Scripture, for the illumination of the Spirit to help us to kind of tie things together and, and, and understand and make connections and so forth and so on. And, and so I would say, um, we'll see if the Lord will, will give me the ability to communicate this clearly, uh, but, but I would say that if in understanding this psalm, um, that verses 1 through 7 are given uh, to keep us from falling into verses 8 through 11. So the, the theme of the psalm or the emphasis of the psalm really is this warning here. If you hear His voice today, do not harden your heart like they did in the provocation in the wilderness when they tempted God and they proved God. 
40 years he was grieved with this generation and, and he said they err in their hearts and they have not known his ways and he swore in his wrath they would not enter into his rest. Well, well, that sounds kind of scary. Honestly, that sounds serious. It's a sobering thing. So how is it that we put ourselves in a position to where we're not allowing our heart to be hardened? Well, first we have to figure out what that even meant for the people's heart to be hardened. We'll look explicitly at the text in a minute, but you'll remember this just by way of your familiarity with Exodus. When the people's heart became hardened, it happened in three different phases. First, the people began to complain. Things were not going the way they wanted them to go. Secondly, they started to call God's character into question, His faithfulness. Their trust in God ceased. Did He bring us out here to kill us? It would have been better for us to stay in Egypt. Is God even with us? So first they complained. Secondly, they doubted God, His goodness, His faithfulness. Third, by the time they get to inherit to the place to where they're going to inherit the promised land, they go in and they say, hey, it's exactly like God said it was going to be, but there's no way we can take this place. started out with complaining. It led to doubting. It ended in complete disobedience to God. And so this says in a nutshell, do not harden your heart the way they did. Do not harden your heart through constant complaining that leads to doubting, that leads to obedience. Well, how do you do that? Come and let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. How is it that we fight against a heart that is hardened against the Lord? The answer to that is worship. The answer to that is worship. You cannot complain about a God that you're worshiping. You cannot complain and move into doubt if you're implementing the first half of this psalm. So it's a call to worship, and it's really the the positive side of the negative, harden not your heart against the Lord. So let's start out in um, the first part of this psalm, verses 1 through 5, and it's a a call to worship through praise, praising God. Um, Come, let us sing unto the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before His presence with thanksgiving and make a joyful noise unto Him with psalms. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In His hand are the deep places of the earth. The strength of the hills is His also. The sea is His, and He made it. And His hands formed the dry land. So it's a call to worship. And the first question is how? How? How are we to come and to worship God? Well, here in this section, it's come and worship the Lord through singing. Through singing, through making a joyful noise. It's praise. We're bringing praise to God. We're, we're bringing praise through song and, and we know what that's like. We do that every time we, we come here and we, uh, open the worship service with, uh, with singing. And our songs consist of all kinds of things, but one of the, one of the, the, the genres, you might say, that we have that we sing to the Lord is that we're singing songs of praise. Praise for what God has done for us in Christ. Praise that we can trust in His promises. Praise that He's our shepherd. 
Praise that He has allowed us to know Him and to call Him our God. Praise that He is a merciful, generous God to His people. The call to worship here is a call to praise God. Come and sing. Come and make a joyful noise. Come and bring your thanksgivings to Him. And then come, it says, and bring a joyful uh, come and make a joyful noise unto him with psalms. That's the end of verse two, and the, that's just song. Come and, and with joyful singing unto the Lord. How do you worship God? Well, that's the how. At least in this section, if we're going to worship God through praise, this is God's prescribed way. You can, you know, you don't have to give your thanksgivings through song, but. Uh, Thanksgiving needs to certainly be a part of what it means to praise God. Uh, praise is a personal thing. Praise means that I'm acknowledging that these things that I'm singing about, these things that I am lifting up joyfully, aren't just abstract things. They're things that have to do with me. And they're things that I have received and things that I have experienced. And so we worship how? Through singing, through making a joyful noise, through thanksgiving. And then the question is, why? Why? Well, the psalm is really laid out uh, nicely here. Verse 3, it says, For the Lord is a great God. That word for just means because. Why would we come to God this way? Because the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. Now, the word great there uh, just means mighty. He's a mighty, he's a sovereign God. He is, he is the sovereign king above all. Why would you bring praise? Why would you bring thanksgiving to him? Well, number one, because he's worthy of that. Anything you've ever received, you receive from the hand of the Almighty who is sovereign over all. Secondly, Verse 4, in his hand are the deep places of the earth. The strength of the hills is his also. Okay, why? Why would we come before the Lord and worship him through praise? Well, because secondly, his, his vastness really is beyond our mental grasp. We can't, you can't even grasp the, the bigness, the glory, the vastness of God. Look at the description here. In his hand are the deep places of the earth. The deep places of the earth here, that's just referring to the places of the earth that you can't go to. The places you don't know anything about. The places that are beyond your reach. And, and to God, they're just, it's just in his hand. It's just there. It's no problem for him. He created it. And not only does he, not only did he create it, but he exists outside of that. It's not a big thing for him. The sea is his, and he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. So number one, he's mighty. That's why we ought to come with him and or come to him and worship him through praise. He's, his vastness is beyond our grasp. His, his, the, the literal word, not the misuse of the word, but the literal word for just awesome, just standing in awe, struck with who it is that we're coming to and praising. And then third, he is the creator and he is the sustainer. Uh, of the world. Um, the sea is His and He made it. And His hands formed the dry land. 
This is why we would come to worship a God like this. But again, there's, there's, there's more to it. He's gonna, he's gonna give a second call to worship in verse six. First, it's a call to worship through praise. Second, in verse six, O come and let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. This is a call to worship through reverence, through submission. The call here is let us bow down, let us kneel before the Lord, let us prostrate ourselves before Him. Why would we do that? Why would we do that? Because we realize that not only is He worthy of praise, but He's worthy of reverence. He's a holy God. He's a God who is not like us. He he is a God in whose presence just by ourselves we do not belong and we cannot stand. Bow before Him. The psalmist says, worship him, kneel before your maker, know your place before God. Now, look, this isn't just a, this isn't just a, uh, fodder for a sermon on the holiness of God and all of his attributes. These are things you need to know if you're going to keep yourself and you're going to guard your heart from being hardened before the Lord. Why was it that the children of Israel hardened their hearts? Well, it was, it was really, I mean, if you just boil it all the way down, it was really because they were disappointed and discontent with who God was and what God was doing. That, that was the problem. Sure, he, he delivered us out of Egypt, but what about the rest? What about the rest? He took us out of 400 years of slavery, but what about the good food? Uh, the cake is fine, but I like icing on my cake. Okay, that's the problem. And we do that in life all the time. It's not that Israel became uh, abstract atheist. If you were to ask them, do you believe in God? Did God really deliver you from Egypt? I mean, you saw all the plagues. You walked through two walls of water that swallowed up and destroyed your enemy. Nobody in that camp would have said, well, I've decided there's just not enough evidence for me to conclude there's a God. Nobody would have said that. But you know what a lot of them did? They murmured. They complained. They doubted. And functionally, functionally, they lived lives of unbelief. Okay? And so the psalmist here is saying, guard your heart. Now this is how you're going to do it. Through regular praise. Regular thanksgiving. Regular singing. And regularly... Um, uh, putting yourself, reminding yourself of who you are before the Lord so that you are bowing before Him. Now, he goes on, why would we do that? Why would we do that? In some ways, whenever we think about what it means to come to God in reverence and, and come to God in submission, we think about it as, as if God's foot is on our neck, and it certainly could be, but that's not where the psalmist goes here. Verse 6, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker for, because, this is why, for He is our God and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Okay, so why is it that we would come and bow ourselves before this God? Because He's made us His, that's why. 
Okay, this is not the kind of reverent fear that comes and bows down and says, Lord, please don't destroy me. This is the kind of reverent fear that comes and bows down and says, I am not worthy of the least of the blessings that you are lavishing me with. How is it that I could be worthy to be called one of your sheep? How is it that the God who holds the deep places of the earth in his hand has decided that he was going to be my God, my shepherd? Okay, this is the kind of reverent submission. It's not, I'm afraid if I don't do right, God's going to swat me. It's God has revealed his love to me in such a way I can do nothing but fall before him in, 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 in the knowledge that I am so unworthy of the blessings that he showered upon me. See, those are two different things. He says, uh, let us bow down because he is our God. The, the children of Israel needed a good reminder of that in Exodus 17, didn't they? When we find ourselves prostrate before God saying, we're not worthy of the least of your blessings, it's kind of hard to complain, isn't it? Um, he is our God. We're the people of His pasture, the sheep of His hand. He's our good shepherd. He, he, John chapter 10, Jesus would pick up on this theme. We talk about it with Psalm 23 and the shepherd imagery that goes through the Old Testament. Really two key things here. Number one, and, um, and you can just write down the, the verse. I'm not going to go there for time's sake, but John 10, um, in verse 14, he says that he's the good shepherd and he knows his sheep and he is known of his sheep. Think about what all the Lord has blessed you to know. And what a blessing and comfort and help that is. That's going to be important because the, the last verse here in verse 11 talks about the fact that he swore in his wrath that these people would not enter into his rest. His rest. It's talking about a, a state of peace, a, a state of consolation. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. My sheep know me and I know them. He would also say in John chapter uh, 10, uh, verse 11, I'm the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. What more could we ask? What more could we possibly ask for God to do, for Christ to do, to prove his faithfulness to us? Now remember the progression. We complain, we doubt, we disobey. And here where the psalmist is going is he's saying you ought to prostrate yourself before God in realization that he's given you more than you could ever have expected and thought reasonable. You ought to come to him praising him joyfully. That's the complaining part. And when you get word that your good shepherd loved you to the extent that he laid down his life for you. How could you ever doubt? How could we ever doubt his goodness? How could we ever doubt his faithfulness? How could we ever doubt that he really has made himself our God and he really does care for us as his sheep? But we do. That's what the psalm is all about. 
He's saying, don't do this. Don't allow your heart to become hardened in this way. He's not talking about doubts that come and go. He's talking about a heart that just becomes um, um, surrounded by, hardened by these doubts, these complaints. And so he says, he's our God and we're the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice. Now, again, all of this is connected. Today, if you will hear his voice, whose voice? The voice of the Almighty. The the voice of the one that we ought to be bringing thanksgiving and, and song and joy. The voice of the one who we ought to come in humble, reverent submission because He has given us more than we could ever imagine. Today, if you will hear His voice, harden not your heart. Again, this is not meant to try to make you shudder. It's meant to make you melt. You understand the difference in that? It's the difference in a a child who wants to please their parent because they know their parent loves them and it's not you messed up and now I'm going to wear you out. It's I'm so disappointed. I'm so disappointed that you would do that. And it just melts the heart of that child. Okay, This is the kind of warning you're, we're talking about here. Harden not your heart. As in the provocation. It's just the time of provoking that he's going to reference back to. And as in the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my word. So what's he saying? Well, he's saying don't harden your heart, because if you do harden your heart, you're going to put yourself in a position like your fathers where you will be tempting me, putting me to the test. You'll be seeking to prove me. That is test. Both of those words mean to test to try. And he said, as far as they're concerned, 40 years long was I grieved with this generation and said, it's a people that do err in their heart. Again, the heart it started with a complaint, started with, a, with an unmet desire. They have not known my ways. It, it, it went into doubting and wrong thinking about God and God's ways unto whom I swear in my wrath, they should not enter into my rest. So a call to worship through praise, a call to worship through reverence and submission. And this really is the heart of the whole psalm right here. And it's a it's a call to worship through sincere obedience. Sincere obedience. Um, what we'll find when we get to Hebrews chapter 3, and, and for time's sake, I'm really trying to weave all this together without turning and parking in a lot of places, but... What we'll find is that this call to not harden your heart is in Hebrews chapter three, a call that you would not allow your heart to um, to drift into unbelief, that you would hold to the profession that you've made. And, and so what he's saying here, starting in verse seven B today, if you hear his voice, harden not your heart. He's talking about first an example not to follow. And we said this already, but the New Testament picks this up and uses this as an example not to follow in um, 
explicitly in at least two places. Okay, the first one is 1 Corinthians 10. And, and look at 1 Corinthians 10. Look at the language that's being used here. 1 Corinthians 10. I'm, I'm going to try not to do a lot of commenting here just for time's sake, but moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat and did all drink the same spiritual drink for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Christ. What's he saying here? He's, first off, he's saying, brother, don't be ignorant. Don't be ignorant that, that our fathers, this is the first part of the, the story, they all were given the same blessings and provisions. They were all under the cloud of His presence. They all drank from the rock. Hey, it wasn't that some were favored and others weren't. They were all given the same thing. But they didn't all respond the same way, did they? Look in verse 5. But with many of them, God was not well pleased. for They were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things were written... I'm sorry. Now these things were our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Be um, Neither be ye idolaters, as were some of them. People sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed and fell in one day, three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents, neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. And at this point, the children of Israel's faces are red. They're thinking, how many examples are you going to get? Right? The list just keeps going on and on and on. What's the point? They all had the same provisions, but they didn't all have the same desire, so they didn't all respond in the right way. What is he talking about here in verse 5? Many of them God was not well pleased. Why? Because they were lusting after evil things. Their hearts, their desires, right? Harden not your heart in the day of provocation. They all had the same provisions. God's presence was there. God's protection was there. God fed them. God gave them water. But what? Well, they wanted more than that. They deserved more than that. It was comfort and ease that they were living for. Yeah, you know, it was it was okay to be delivered from Egypt, but what about the other stuff? What 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 about the what what about um uh, all the other difficulties that I have to go through? And they just became grumblers and complainers. And that led to doubting God and that led to disobedience. What was the first thing that went wrong? Well, he says it in about four or five different ways, and it essentially comes back to they desired evil things. They were idolaters. That's desiring anything over and above God. They were fornicators. That is, desiring something that God has forbidden. They were murmurers. That is, desiring God to do something that He's not doing, so I'm going to complain about God because He's not taking my commands. They were... um, 
Maybe that's it. And then the, the, the other one that he throws in verse 9 is that they tempted Christ in that way. Be careful that you do not harden your heart. How do you harden your heart? Well, first, before it becomes hardened against God, it has to go after something else. Okay, So we're not talking about something neutral. We're talking about turning from God, turning to something. Be careful, he says. One of the ways that you're going to guard yourself is through worship, through praise, through reverence, through submission, through reminding yourself of who you are and what you've received. Jesus says in Matthew 15, as he quotes Isaiah about the Pharisees, that um, they worshiped him with their mouth, but their, their hearts were far from him. Right? The heart is so important. And we've talked about that a lot in the Psalms and we've gone to Proverbs 4.23 a lot. Above all else, keep your heart or guard your heart. So what's the the New Testament application here. Again, this is one of those psalms. It's 11 small verses, but I mean, we could spend weeks ringing this psalm out. It is chalked full of application for us. We're going to look at one of those in the next, uh, you know, in the last 10 minutes or so here um, in, in our passage here in Hebrews. So the New Testament application of Psalm 95 is Hebrews 3. So if you want to turn there, where we're going to spend the rest of our time. Hebrews chapter 3. If you're familiar at all with the theme of Hebrews, you know that um, the writer is writing to... Um, Jewish converts, and he is encouraging them, trying to encourage them not to turn back. Do not go back to the law. Christ is superior to that. Do not go back to Moses. Do not go back to this. Do not go back to that. Christ is superior to anything you could ever go back to. So don't go back. Hold fast the profession of your faith. Now, when we get into verse, I'm sorry, chapter three, we really don't start Psalm 95 until we get to verse 7, but look how he starts out in this chapter in verse 1. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much as he who hath builded the house hath more honor than the house. For every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. You see that? But, but we are Christ's house. If what? If we hold fast. In what? In rejoicing, right? 
And the confidence, that is, trusting, rejoicing, hoping unto the end. Well, that's just another way of saying, harden not your heart. Come to the Lord and worship Him with praise. Come to the Lord and worship Him with reverence. And before we say, well, that's a stretch. Nope. Because he's getting ready to reference Psalm 95 five times in the next chapter and a half. He's making the connection, not me. This is not me just, you know, trying to grab something to make it sound good. This is what the author here is doing. Verse 7, Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, today, if you will hear His voice, harden not your heart as in the day of provocation and the day of temptation in the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works forty years, wherefore I was grieved with that generation and said, they do always err in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Take heed. Here's an application point. There's a bunch in here, but here's one. There's an overall application that you'll see as, as it goes through the end of uh, chapter 4. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Now, what does it mean at this point? How is he applying this don't harden your heart? Well, he's writing to Jews who were professing believers and his Exhortation to them, what he's, what he's trying to encourage them throughout the letter is don't turn back. Don't turn back. Be careful. Lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. Well, a hardened heart here is a heart of unbelief that rejects the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he's talking about here. I'll take the law over the gospel. I'm more comfortable there. I'll, I'll take, I'll take, and when you get into verse, uh, into chapter four, he'll, he'll begin to talk about God providing this rest because he rested the same kind of rest that he entered into on the seventh day and that we must labor to enter into that rest that was provided to us by Christ. Okay, rest from what? Rest from our labors. What's that rest? How is that rest found? Well, it's found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's found in Psalm 95, verse 6. He is our God and we are the sheep of His pasture in His hand. Be careful that you do not, uh, lest there be an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. So again, the evil heart is unbelief, doubt, what we talked about in Exodus, departing from the living God as a result of rejecting the gospel of Christ so that unbelief will will lead to departing. Well, Numbers chapter 14, whenever they would not enter into the promised land, right? they departed, they, they, they disobeyed. You can go on, verse 13, while you're taking heed... Verse 13, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. What's a hardened heart? Well, it's a heart that is deceived by sin as a result of what? As a result of rejecting the gospel. 
And really, rejecting might be too strong of a word because we don't always think about it this way, but it's just a, a result of forgetting the gospel, a result of, of, of um, making light of the gospel, being convinced that there's something better out there than the gospel. He said, don't, don't be just, if you, if you get there, you're going to set yourself up to be deceived by sin. You're going to set yourself up to depart from the living God. You're going to think you can do better, but you'll really do worse. Verse 14, for we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. If we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. So it's a falling away as a result of rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's the point that I'm making. Um, and I'm not making it. The writer of Hebrews is making it in 3 and 4. That there is a rest, there is a peace, a consolation for God's people to enter into. And that peace, that consolation is entered into through a life of worship that consists of belief or trust in Christ that leads to a life of sincere obedience to Christ. But it's all centered around the gospel. It starts with what are you believing? What are you holding on to? What are you hoping in? What you believe in is going to, is going to, going to affect what you think you deserve. And what you think you deserve is going to affect how much complaining you do. And the amount of complaining you do is really going to play a part in how much doubting you do. And that's all wrapped up in idolatry. The writer of Hebrews is saying, brothers and sisters, what Psalm 95 was trying to encourage us to do is to keep the main thing the main thing. And the most important thing for you and the most important thing for me, if we would hear his voice and not harden our heart, is that we would embrace and hold on to firm to the end all the promises and riches and treasures of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that he's known me from all eternity that He's chosen me, that He's died for me, that I've been washed in His blood, that He has uh, secured my adoption into the family of God, that He is completing that which He started in me. It's the most powerful, stabilizing provision that God's ever given you. So what does that have to do with an election upset? Anything? that have anything to do with the way you would respond to an election upset? It should. What does that have to do with the daily disappointments of life? What does that have to do with the fact that your life might not have turned out the way you thought it was going to? A lot. Okay? A lot. What does it have to do with, with um, the struggles and difficulties of life? Well, it influenced Paul to say that these present struggles are just for a moment. They're real, yeah, but they're just for a moment. And they're not worthy to be compared to the glory that I've received and that I'm going to inherit through Christ. Not because I've done something, because He's done something. Because He's my God and I'm the sheep of His pasture. And so he says, hold on to that. Your worship will rise and fall based on your grasp of the gospel. Here's another thing you'll notice, and we'll end here. 
you'll notice that the the, the phrase that's picked up on, um, you'll notice that the author of Hebrews thinks that this is... Uh, this is an urgent matter for you. And so does the author of Psalm 95. In other words, it's not, yeah, you know, I know I need to get around to that. I know I need to put more effort into that. And I will eventually when things slow down, things get easier. That time never comes, by the way. When is it? When is it that the author of Psalm 95, when is it that the author of Hebrews says, you ought to hear His voice and not harden your heart. Today, Hebrews 3.7. Today, if you've heard His voice. Hebrews 3.13. Today, if you've heard His voice. Hebrews 4.7. Today, if you've heard His voice. That has everything to do with whenever we get down to um, Hebrews chapter 4 and we're talking about um, coming boldly to the throne of grace. Why would we do that? Because today we've heard His voice and we embrace it and we pursue it. Okay, So today, so here's the question. Have you heard His voice today? Well, the obvious answer to that is yes. And so Psalm 95 would say, Hebrews 3 4 would say, if you've heard His voice today, then do not respond in stubborn rebellion but look to Christ in faith and labor to enter into that rest. You say, how do I do that? Well, you do that by bathing your heart and your mind with the promises of the gospel. I'm His. He's made it so. He loves me. He'll never leave me. He'll never forsake me. He's for me. If He's given me His Son, what would He possibly withhold from me? Today, if you've heard His voice, harden not your heart. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we do pray that You would bless us to hold fast uh, to, the, to the Gospel, to the profession, to our early profession, that we would not move past that, that we would not minimize that, that we would not think that... Um, what we've been given in Christ is just a, a little nudge that we grow out of and move on to bigger and better things. Lord, it's what guards our heart. It's what keeps us from going after idols. Father, if we have the Gospel forefront in our minds, we realize we've received far more than we could ever deserve. And so what room is there for complaint? If we have the gospel forefront in our mind, we could never entertain the motion that you're not faithful and that you're not good to your people. And if we keep the gospel in the forefront of our mind, Lord, how could we depart from the living God who has loved us, who has washed us, and who cares for us so well? Lord, would you apply these things to our hearts in Jesus' name? Amen. Anyone have anything on their hearts before we dismiss? Again, I would encourage you to go back, spend some time in Psalm 95 and in Hebrews 3 and 4, and um, pray the Lord will, will give you some illumination there. It'll, you'll, you can get excited about that stuff. It's, uh, it's what we live off of.
So you're dismissed.